Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. Deep Dune cut. edition. Can I say deep cut and then you say Dune. Dune, <laughs> Dune edition. <laughs> for you. You're cut off. <laughs> Welcome back, friends. Hi. <laughs> this is going to go good. I can tell. Get over here. All right. Well, we're talking about Dune, obviously, but we're talking about the Children of Dune miniseries produced by the Sci-Fi Channel in 2003. Fucking finally. I am so excited to talk about this. I can't even begin to tell you. So do you ever love something like deeply, but you haven't seen it in a while and then you go back and watch it and you love it even more when you watch it again? Like it not only does it hold up, but it got better. And is there any fucking better feeling in the world for somebody who likes stories and movies and television shows to go back and revisit something you loved and it is as good and better? You. <laughs> Every time I go to Get California for a week, <laughs> I come back and I haven't seen you in a while. A week. It's a beautiful thing. Like a week. A beautiful thing. Honey. Okay, well, besides interpersonal <laughs> romantic relationships, is there any better feeling in the world than like, oh my God, that was just as good as I remembered it? Because I think I watched, this came out when I was in high school. Yeah. Like my last year of high school. And... I really, really, really enjoyed watching it. And I hadn't read the Dune novels yet. And it was one of the, those things where you're like, it holds a special place in your heart, but when do you have time to sit down and watch four and a half hours of content? Um, I mean, we do that, obviously. But like, it's just something that I had never made time to go back and rewatch. It was mm -hmm. just like, mm, it was good. But uh, maybe it's that little bit like, is it still going to be good? Like, this is 20 years old now. If I go back and watch this again, is it going to be as good? And I can confidently say the answer to that is, is yes. Is yes. Yes. It <laughs> yes. Was, it yes. was so Absolutely. fucking good. I was so excited to watch this. I don't know if I've ever watched the first part of this. The first episode. All the way through. I'm not going to lie. I almost cried a couple of times. I yeah, cried a, a couple emotional there's, parts. There's a couple emotional parts, and then there was a couple of. It was so good. I got teary eyed. Like, like I, I like, I missed it up a little bit because I was like, that adaptation was so well done. <laughs> or this change is so much better than the book. Yes. Okay. So, I guess we can we can actually talk about the book instead of just how I had like a lady boner this entire movie because it was so <laughs> fucking good but okay so it's children of dune comes out in 2003 it's called children of dune but it's actually an adaptation of dune messiah and children of dune smushed together like together so dune messiah is episode one roughly 
And Children of Dune is episode two and three. And the beauty, the charm, the genius of this format is that it lets us fold Children of Dune back into Dune Messiah. Yes, we just we plant seeds of Children's of Children of Dune for like the longer plot arcs. Yeah. In this episode. Yes. And mm. but we get to maintain that that continuity of here's an episode, here's an episode, here's an episode. Yeah, because if you'll remember from our discussion about the sci-fi's adaptation of Dune, Irulan gets an expanded role. A much, much, much expanded role. And she kind of continues that trend of having an expanded role, which is beautiful because we get to see her for the tragic figure that she actually is. Because Frank Herbert was an excellent writer, but he was a writer of his time. He wrote in the 60s and the 70s, and female characters did not get the same treatment in books at that time that you would expect them to now. So you have these tailor-made, just like great female characters. You have Irulan, who's this tragic, was slated to be the ruler of the universe. Married the ruler of the universe, is desperately in love with the ruler of the universe, and he could not give less of a shit about her. And then you have Chani, who is this beautiful, strong, independent, like, intelligent character and both of them actually get the attention they deserve and then Alia doesn't get to just be that weird girl who couldn't hold on to her own head like she actually right. gets to have like a I was a person and shit happened to me and from my point of view Alia is actually one of the most tragic figures in all of Dune Paul tragic of course. But at least his mother cared for him his entire childhood. He got a childhood. Alia got born kind of like, well, I got pregnant because I thought maybe the Duke would like to have another one. And then, <laughs> oopsies, he kind of died. You remind me of the Duke. I don't even want to look at you. I'm outsies. So Alia had no mom, had no childhood, had no family, had nothing. She had Paul. And Paul only had his vision of the future and Chani. And that was it. And I think that the way they treat the plot lines in this miniseries absolutely gives those characters the justice they deserve. Uh, justice they deserve in like the treatment they deserve, not the right. justice and, like the things that happen to them. And to balance that out for like the amount of storytelling time they have is we drop a lot of the background plotting so we don't see yeah. like the whole plot with eric elric elric the yeah the navigator the spe the spice and Sightail and irulan they have communication ahead of time planning this whole thing in the book in the book yeah there's a lot and of we, meetings and we talking. pretty much just drop that and we only hint at it yeah which is fine and it's, it's fine. It's fucking fine. It's exactly what you needed to do. If you put every single, hey, let's put people in a room and have a conversation in this that you had in the book, it'd be like, first it'd be like 50 hours long. And it'd be right. like, like watching paint dry. Like you can read that, but I don't want to watch that. So we get a real granular look at all of the plots in the book. We don't in the miniseries, but I think they do a good enough job. 
of implying that there's lots going on. Yeah. There's Korba, who um, is actually plotting against him. There's um, actually, it's not Irulan because we gave Irulan that expanded role. We've got to keep her as a tragic figure. She doesn't get to plot against. She doesn't right. get to plot against him. And this is a him. seed that we get to plant from Children of Dune, where we have Wencencia, Wencencia, Irulan's sister, yes, who's plotting in Children of Dune. Right. She shows up in Children of Dune, and she's sort of like a. I mean, she's a plot wedge. Let's face it. Is it is that's not she's a she's moment. a scheming member of royalty. Yeah, who's not particularly valuable, like yeah. as a person. It's a way to get Faradin in the story. Yeah, and it, it's it's very obvious. It's a way to get. She's not she's not a um, she doesn't feel meaningful in and of herself because she just shows up long enough to tell you some of her plots and then she disappears and she pops back up long enough to get kicked off of her own planet because of the shit that she did and, and then, even in the book sort she's of a very so. shallow character yeah i mean in the book she's yeah. a shallow character yeah. but when we did this adaptation they fold Wensensia all the way back so she's part of the gola plot she's part of the plot to kill muadib from the very beginning and we actually get to see, like, her dad died and Muad'Dib didn't come. He sent Irulan, but nobody else came either. And, and she's so, pissed. And she's pissed. So we get like a, oh, we get motivation. Now it's personal. Now we get we get our motivation. And we get like, oh, she's going to be working for years and years and years. Right. She's grooming Faradin to be the emperor yeah. when all of her plans succeed. And we're already seeing that Faradin is... A, a sensitive kid. Yeah. Who doesn't, he doesn't have the ambition like burned in genetically. Yeah. We meet, yeah, we meet Faradin as a child and we get the scene where when Sensia is talking to Tyaknik and she's like, oh, he, we're going to groom him to be like, he's going to be a Sardaukar. He's going to be a warrior. And Tyaknik's like, there's many different ways to serve the empire and maybe... Being a warrior isn't his strong suit. Like, maybe he's not going to be a great warrior. Like, we just got to be prepared for that, okay? Because he gets hit and he immediately runs and he's like, Mom! Because he got... My he, nose is bleeding. Yeah, and she's like, Ew, you're getting shit on me. Like, back up. Don't, don't, no, no touchy. No touchy. And you're like, oh, okay. This is a great way of immediately establishing. You're establishing yes. when is character. You're establishing Faradin because she's like, do you want these men to see you cry? And he's like, I don't give a shit if they yeah, see me cry. Seeing how an adult deals with a kid gives you a very broad feel of who how they are as a person. Yeah. And so we're really continuing our trend from the first Dune adaptation where we just do these really broad, beautiful strokes that fill in so much fucking color. Like we got so much from that interaction from the... Faradin walking away, and then we pull back, and what we see in the foreground is a bird tied to a stake. Yep. Symbology. Yeah. Symbolism, I think is the word you're looking for. <laughs> and can we just get a moment for Alec Newman? Why did he not go on to do more stuff? He is so I really don't know. good he, in this. He is He so... rocks this role. Oh, my God. He is Paul Muad'Dib. I'm not going to lie. The newer movie, like the one that came out in 2020, was fine. But when you tell me Paul Muad'Dib, uh, Alec Newman, like hands 100%. down, Alec Newman. He's great in Dune. 
He is transcendent in Children of Dune. When he comes back for the next two and they got him in old makeup. <laughs> it provokes an emotional reaction, but Rachel. But that ain't his fault, okay? <laughs> it, it, I, I refuse to believe that that's... I, it's that, not that's on you, a, Alec. That's success. That's not on you, Alec. That's right. on on the... On the budget that was provided. This clearly has a larger budget. But he still budget. performs. He does. No, I remember it. You remember it? I remember it. It an emotional reaction. And it, you're not, it doesn't make you leave like the franchise. Right. No, I so wasn't that's... like, oh, bloop, turn it off. Shit. And I have turned things off because I didn't like a sound effect. So there is absolutely a reason I would have absolutely turned it off if I didn't like his makeup enough. But he in this, him and um, I think her name, her, I know what her name is, but saying it out loud is hard because she has a hard name. It's Barbo, Barbara Kodatova. 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 Okay. Barbara Kodatova. And she's the lady who plays Chani. And she's actually on Instagram and I follow her and none of her posts are in English. But like, I just really like seeing her. <laughs> so um, she's in this and he, they're the same actors. Some of the actors we didn't get back. But we got both of them back, thank God, because it works perfectly. And their chemistry is like lightning in a bottle. It's so fucking great, and I love it. And every time they're on the screen together, you feel like they are two seconds from banging each other. And that is exactly what I want from Chani and Paul. And we get it. And we get it every time they're together. Because we open with, like, um, Paul walking on the street and seeing the world that he has created. And there's people selling icons with a picture of him on it. There's people selling icons with a picture, icons like religious iconography, like you would see in, I think, which not which one lets you use idols? Is it Eastern Orthodox or is it? <laughs> uh, Catholicism, right? Well, yeah, but Catholicism oh, oh. had the whole yeah, big East, schism I think thing. Eastern Orthodox is very anti- Iconography. Iconography. Okay. Yeah, they broke up over yeah. it. They, there, it was a whole thing. It's like a thing. So, yeah. you know, one uses them, one doesn't. So they're icons as in like religious icons, like paintings of um, Mary or not Mary. Yeah, the Virgin and stuff. Like the uh, the candles in the Hispanic section at the grocery store. Correct. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> like that, that exactly. That's, that's what it would be like. Yeah. Except it'd be... You're shopping for groceries, and, and there's a little booth that has candles with paintings of Paul, like Muad'Dib and, and Chani and Alia. Yeah. And, and they're so, just cheap little trinkets right. that people are profiting off of their, like, just physical images. For, yeah. Not because of any, like, religious adherence, but just because that's a market. I feel like this is a good moment to insert that Google describes this as intense, melodramatic, and powerful. And Matt was like, oh, you mean me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? We don't actually open with him walking. We open with an immediate inversion of what we had in Dune. So Dune ends triumphant. Dune ends with yeah. he's defeated the house Oh, yeah, we Harkonnen. get, like, the voiceover. Yeah, you know, he's... Oh, this, this is fucking great. Like, he's taken over the world. He's going to send the Fremen out to bring peace to the universe. Everything's going fucking great. But the saga of Dune is far from over. Because <laughs> we open with, like, dead bodies on a battlefield with snow falling on them. And a banner. Uh, I think it's ashes. Ugh. 
and a banner with like Muad'Dib's sigil on it. Yeah. And uh, this is an immediate, oh, shit. And then Irulan gets her cool voiceover, which, again, she does a fucking great job, Julie Cox. I really like, once, like, a, just a repeat of how well they did it in the first Dune miniseries. Yeah. We get the same role of Irulan as in the books, where we have, like, the, the, snippet. the snippets at the top, where it's just, like, here's a paragraph from a book. Oh, it was written by Irulan, like the history of Muad'Dib or yeah. the symbol symbolism of the Muad'Dib. You almost said symbology. I almost said symbology <laughs> unironically. Uh, See, it's become a me. habit. That's what happens. You let it become a habit. It's like holding a face for yeah. too long. Yeah, it's going to slapped in the back. You're not going to get to Okay, so we get the same role of providing some extra context, like a future narrator giving context on like this moment in time yeah, from like a fairly dry academic perspective. But then we also get even more context because we see Irulan as a person yeah. who actually has emotions and goals mm. and things <laughs> that she so wants good. and can't have. And... Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. But she gets this voiceover which is like well it's 12 12 years later y'all and <laughs> shit's not great it's like millions of people have died millions of people more have been like conquered he sent his from his wild fremen out to conquer every corner of the universe and now there are no innocents left and we get a small snippet from the battlefield where they're like, if you refuse to believe in the power of Muad'Dib, we're going to go ahead and kill you. So it's like not only was this a jihad to like put down people who did not support Muad'Dib's role as an emperor, but it's also a religious jihad. As in forced conversion. If you do not believe like we want you to right. believe, we will kill you. And in Children of Dune, we really hit hard that the the government and the church are the same thing. Are the same thing. And that's a problem. Yeah. Because every well, empire contains the seeds of its own destruction. And in this uh in this first part, this for I guess Children of Dune part one, we get So much shirtless James McAvoy. So much. Um <laughs> A specific Sorry, on the on I de the I derailed you. <laughs> it's just what popped into my head. I was like, on the subject so of religion and government combined, or I guess religion and the state. Um, we specifically have a meeting with Paul and Alia and the other major actors. Yeah, about a constitution. And are we going to have a constitution? And Paul is like, no, we don't want to have a like formalized constitution because as soon as you write down the laws, people start to do legalistic workarounds and loopholes to follow the word of the law, but not the spirit of the law. You mean in the book he goes over all yes, that? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, so, in this, guess, he's just like, no. <laughs> yeah, he's like, we're not going to do a constitution. No, but in the that. book, we go like chapters <laughs> yeah. explaining why why it's a bad idea to have a formal constitution from 
from a very abstract philosophical perspective, they're making true statements. Yeah. But it's not practical. Yeah. And that's, I think that's part of this whole story is the, the difference between like theoretically ideal situations and practical situations. Yeah. And people are either too far on one side or the other. And that's what causes a lot of the problems. Yeah. And we eliminate a lot of that discussion, which is actually quite fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, I love the book as much as I, I love the book. I fucking love the book. Of course, I fucking love the book. I say that every time we talk about Dune Messiah. But is it wordy? My God, it's so wordy. So, yeah, of course, I, I don't mind reading that discussion. I'm like, oh, yeah, good point. That's a valid point. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate that. But if I had to watch that, I would die. It'd be like watching paint dry. I don't want to. I don't want to watch people have a discussion. I don't want to watch if, people have a debate. If people, if you want to have, like, watch people have a dry philosophical treatise on <laughs> the pros and cons of a formalized constitution with rules and laws and stuff like that. There's hundreds of hours of that on YouTube. Yeah. Go watch that. I think he literally just says we cannot allow the Atreides to be contaminated with the chaos of democracy. That's what Alia says. Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes, well, she knows my mind. No, no to constitutions. Because they're like, well, let's just make one like a pretty one. We'll put it on pretty letterhead. We'll write some flowery words that mean nothing. And then they'll feel like they got something. And he's like, nope. Not even a placebo. No, thank you. And we move. So we immediately get like, oh, shit. The jihad grew out of his. Con I mean, not out of his control because he knew this was coming. He made it as small as possible. But the jihad was not what everyone thought it was going to be. Right. And his rule is not what everyone hoped it was going to be. And yes, he has conquered the whole known universe. But now he is literally like a god emperor. Right. And because the whole government religion is combined, the governmental actions are the product of a religious movement. Yeah. And so he can't make like governmental statements about how the religious movement acts. And we set all that up in the first half hour. Yeah. It's like brush, brush, here you go. Because it's like, here's some corpses covered in ash. Uh, here's some people getting murdered because they refuse to convert. Here's Paul walking around and he steps in a motherfucking puddle on a desert planet. And then a skull rolls through the puddle and he's just like, oh, <laughs> what have I done? And then he goes back and Alia is giving a speech and everyone's like, yay, Muad'Dib. Yeah, Muad'Dib's the greatest. And we that so we get the jihad was shit. Dune has changed immeasurably. Um, Alia and Paul are religious icons, and Paul ain't happy about it. And we get all of that in like a whoop. Here we go. Yep. And that is the mark to me of an excellent adaptation. Is nothing about the spirit of the book was changed. I think we need to call out the showrunner and the writers. Oh, good point. Let's see who they they are. So it's directed by a guy named Greg Yaitanis, Y A I T A N E S. 
And it doesn't look like he has any movie credits, but he is a director of three of the episodes of House of the Dragon, and he's a like co-executive producer. He apparently directed the finale, which everybody loved. I didn't watch it, but I hear good things. And it's got Matt Smith in it, so maybe someday we'll watch it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. 30 years from now, <laughs> which is our usual timeline. <laughs> we, can, uh, we can do a, a whole series on Game of Thrones <clears throat> from a vintage perspective. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have to get Caden on it. She'd die. But anyway... So this guy has done, he's gone on, he's still working, and he's gone on to do some, like, pretty big name stuff. So we don't get the same director, because the director from the first miniseries is John Harrison, but he comes back as our writer. So he's a writer on the first one, and he's the writer on the second one, like, teleplay. And this one, screenplay-wise, just like narrative weaving-wise, way more work than doing the book and he still fucking crushes it but this one is not filmed like a music video remember the first one is a little bit like it's good but in order to kind of fudge some of the what i think were probably budget pitfalls budget constraints we did a lot with lighting so we did a lot of like you know a, a lot of very dramatic lighting we don't get the same dramatic lighting in this one i don't feel like it lacks anything i think it makes so we changed the eyes, too. So the eyes are not the same blue. Because right. remember in the first one, they're like... Right, they're contact lenses now. Yeah, they're just... They're, their eyes look blue. They look like they just have really... Blue irises. Blue irises. They don't have sclera. like the blue on blue, like the bad eyes or whatever. So we, we ditched that. And what I think it does, actually, for me, is the first one ends up feeling more mystical. Mm-hmm. Because we had the bigger eyes. We had more like... dramatic rock star lighting dramatic fucking rock star lighting and then we get to this one and it feels like the west wing set on a desert planet which i think is the right feel yeah it's great i i don't think it would have worked because the first one is so dune has dune is not a complicated story dune itself is it's not a, a mythological story it's a myth it's a mythological story it is a single thrust it is a boy becomes a king saves the universe that is dune yeah and then from dune shit hits the motherfucking fan and there is absolutely no way thematically that dune matches the next books and i think that's probably why people feel cheated when they move on because you want that same clear single thrust simplicity that you get from dune and you don't get it it's not the same right this is dune meets the real world this is this is like a child grows up the boy emperor grows up he's 17 in dune when he takes over the world and by the time he's in dune messiah he's almost 30 he's grown up the world has gotten bigger he sees more think of how clear and single thrust and simple the world felt at 17 and then how different the world feels at 29 and the books grow with him and it's perfect and it's intentional and i love it and i think that's why thematically it works that this is far more serious feeling this feels like a political drama with a little bit of mystical dune heretic is political drama dune messiah Dune Messiah. Yeah. 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 
So the eyes are different. And then the music. We got a budget, y'all. We could do CG. So the CG is way better. I mean, it's mm -hmm. 2003. So keep them expectations right where they need to be. But it is way better. And Brian Tyler writes the music. So I was I was going to bring up Brian Tyler first. Because as the most, I think, personally impactful part of this content, especially for Rachel... It's the soundtrack. I love the soundtrack so much. <laughs> so as we were watching this, I was like, oh, this song. Yep. I've heard this so many <laughs> times, riding in the car with Rachel, listening to one of her mixed CDs. You don't need to call me out like that. And <laughs> to be frank, well, I'm not frank. Um, to, <laughs> to be Hi, frank. honest... <laughs> A couple of the scenes, the music is really overshadowing, like, the set. And it's like, the music went too hard a couple times. But that's not a horrible thing. Yeah, so here's my take on that. Because I remember watching this the first time through and just, like, that never occurred to me. It felt fucking great. Well, you weren't watching it analytically. Well, one, either. I wasn't watching analytically, and I was watching it 20 years ago. So I had... 2020 I had 2003 expectations for what I was going to see on TV. Right. So I had like I, I was, it was everything was looked great and epic and amazing and then you put great epic amazing music over top of it I was like fuck yeah this is the best. And I still feel that way but I get it. Like the scene when they're in the throne room and we like see the stained glass window and then we get this like huge swell of orchestral music and we just pan down to them yeah, it's sitting. Like, it's a fairly flat wall with a stained glass window yeah. and then three thrones with ha which have a little decoration and visually I think the most prominent and like eye-catching part is just everybody's posture in yeah. their thrones oh, which yeah. is appropriate. But I'm just looking at it analytically because I know we we're going to talk about it on a podcast. Yeah. So I, I pay attention to, oh, that's just a big flat wall with a single like stained glass window in it. Oh, and the thrones don't have a whole lot of like extra decoration on them. At least the birds but aren't flying through the background. <laughs> everybody's costumes are great. And oh, yes. the acting and posing visually is awesome i mean the budget i said the budget was bigger we are still not at it's like, still tv budget it's not apple plus budget y'all this is no billion dollar <laughs> this is no billion this dollar like lord of the ring this isn't foundation this was like sci-fi in the early 2000s and they were like here's some money um, we're not going to give you as much cocaine this time, okay? And maybe that explains the lighting. Because remember, I think we said the budget for the last one was like <laughs> half cocaine. Um, you know, they're just like, here, do your best. And they did. Like, yeah, thank you. Yes, they did their best. They spent Maybe they spent most of their money on Brian. They absolutely spent the majority of the CG budget on getting the worm, like the worm liftoff scene. Yeah. Um, I was looking up what else Brian Tyler has done. He scored... Um, like all the Fast and Furious movies. <laughs> I saw his name on something the and other day. Chippendale Rescue Rangers. This man has range, okay? He also did Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, the Power Rangers movie, the one that my daughter calls yes. the Power Rangers movie that's too old for that's me. That's where I saw his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thor The Dark World. Iron Man Ooh. 3. Uh, yeah. So he's like a 
he's gone on to do other stuff. And it feels like they hired like a Marvel level guy to do the music for this. Yes, it really does. It really does. And it's fine. I think it, uh, how do I want to phrase this? I think the, the best matchup of filming and soundtrack was the one Muad'Dib Cheney scene. Yeah. When he comes in and he's like, she says, I'm not sleep. I'm not asleep. And he's like, I thought you were supposed to be resting. Yeah. And she goes, how can I rest when I know you're out there on the street? Uh, no, there was another one where they kind of had like their faces together uh, and it was very blue tinged. They get the same, like, um, they get the, they have like a Chani loves, like a love theme. Yeah. So it plays a couple of different times. Um, I have no problem with this music. I get where you're coming from. I do. But that's my only real criticism. I think like <laughs> I think the main issue probably is you've heard this music in isolation so that's many times point. that it's like hearing your favorite music from the radio playing over a television set show. You're like, yeah. oh, you notice the music a lot more because it's familiar. Yeah. So that would probably be my guess. Um, we get a new Stilgar. Stilgar didn't come back. But this guy's fine. He's all right. I mean, for as much as he's in it. I think for most of this, I was like, eh, as Stilgar. Eh. Eh. By the end of it, it was like, okay, he's pulling off Stilgar better now. Yeah. I mean, I really liked Stilgar from the first one. Oh, just to return to the music for a second. Probably what, another jarring thing is it stylistically, it's extremely different. It doesn't have the like, we're on a desert. Wah, 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 the like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the desert music. You know what I'm talking about? The every time we're in an arid climate, there's this certain sound that mm -hmm. we get to music. And that definitely shows up in the first one. And in this one, it's more like uh, triumphant, like, I don't know, like high fantasy music. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's part of it. I think we get just a couple of when when we add in vocals, sometimes we'll do the like I'm on the desert like sound, but we don't really um I don't know. There the one that plays over the very end of this episode is absolutely my favorite. The one where we're seeing everybody exactly. We have put all of the pawns into place to move into the the actual action, the children of Dune action. We've got like Irulan lying down crying we've got alia like looking out across the desert we've got chani giving birth paul is like meditating and just trying to hold his shit together um duncan idaho who is now from the planet london instead of the planet glasgow <laughs> ditched his accent um he's standing out on this little cliff I thought maybe he'd get his accent back when he got his memories identity back. slash memories yeah, back. Yeah, and we're just seeing everyone exactly. Like, we're seeing Stilgar kill Mohiam. We're seeing them kill Elric. Um, we're seeing Korba get put into a death still alive, which is fucking brutal, and I love it because that's not what happens in the book. Oh, so this, the music that plays over that is like, mm, just I had that on so many, so many mixed CDs. Um Anyway, the guy who plays Korba actually is the guy who played Liat Kynes in the first one. But he That's had curly he hair. Familiar. He's bald in this one. Yeah. Yeah. And actually the lady who plays um, Lich Lichna, she was a maid yeah. in the first one too. So okay. they they filmed it in the same place. They brought back some of the same extras. Yeah. So. We got the same Othium. 
we did get the same Othium for like a second. It's really sad. Like the fact that yeah. they were able to bring him back gives so much impact to that scene. Because the first time you right. meet him when he comes in and he's like, we've come to learn the weirding way. Right. But it's kind of tense. Yeah. And it's like, it's sticks in my head. Yeah. That scene, at like specifically his face. So I was like, oh no, I know we meet Othium again. I hope they get the same guy. Yeah. From the first miniseries. And they did. And it works really well. It does. Because, of course, he goes to meet him. Lickna shows up and she's like, oh, yeah, my dad, Othium, he's got some uh, information to give you. And he's like, cool. He, he's Why got the TC terminal condition. No, he doesn't say he's sick. He's, he's just not well enough to come oh, okay. to see you. And so uh, Paul's like, how come... He didn't just come. She's like, well, because he's sick. He couldn't come. She's, he's like, okay, why didn't he just tell you the information? You could just tell me right now. She's like, because I might have gotten caught and captured and, like, tortured and shit. And he's like, okay, fine. And he does, like, a – he gets right in her face for a second, which is another shorthand, like, visual way of showing us he's aware that this is a face dancer. Yes. And uh, – So he gets close and he's just staring yeah, he and then he does a little smirk, like, hmm, "I'm glad you came." And he goes, "Thanks for coming." Yep. And then she leaves, and he's like, "That was a fucking face dancer." And Stilgar's like, "Oh, you want me to kill her?" And he's like, "Nah." <laughs> I feel like half of Stilgar's lines in this. <laughs> you want me to take her water? Episode was, "Let me take its water." Yeah, let me take <laughs> its water, her water, that guy's water. I don't know who wants their water taken. Anybody want water? I'm gonna get water. Yeah, he, I'm taking some water at yeah, some point. They were like, "What is he?" I don't know. He's just gonna strut around and threaten to kill people. Yeah, that's fine. It's perfect. It's fine. It doesn't really matter. Which is basically what he does in the book because it's fine. Uh, because Stilgar of Dune Stilgar is really not doesn't Stilgar. do much. Stilgar doesn't have a Dune place Messiah. in Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. Yeah. And it correct. It feels he, like it. It feels like it. He he does not. He does he is a man out of his place. He is a man. He doesn't have the role he thought he was going to have and he has outlived his usefulness and it feels like it and it's supposed to feel like it. And we even get Bajaz and I actually like Bajaz. I was worried. I was, I got him. I'm not going to lie. When I was reading Dune Messiah and we got to the part where there's a little person, I was like, I don't remember how this was handled in the 2003 miniseries, but I, I don't know what amount of faith I have that they did a good job handling this. And I think they did a really good job handling yeah. this. And we call him a dwarf once, Meh. but he gets but to be at, like at the time dwarfism was the like correct technical term yeah and there's a i forget the linguistic term but there's a trend where like you have clinical language to describe things using some new word new-ish word right. that doesn't have any baggage like in the culture but that term gets acquired in as part of the vernacular slang whatever it acquires baggage, yeah, and that filters up it. into the 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 infrastructure or whatever the the bureaucracy. The and so then, once it gets like to a certain level, it's like, oh, we need to change the word yeah. so that the people doing administrative work can maintain their like a uh, a distance, yeah, um, and treat everybody fairly. And so in the book, when they say he's a dwarf 
at the time, that would have been the like. I mean, we say clinical... that in the miniseries too. Oh, we do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but we but, don't harp on it. But it, that don't. was the clinical distancing word at the time. Yeah. Um, it's more like a oh, you're interesting. You're clearly a thing that was made, and we're interested in you because you're clearly some kind of construct. Yeah. And Othium gives him to him just like in the book, and he gets the uh, bygones. Let's be bygone. Like he yeah. still gets the cool rhyming words. He doesn't get as many, which is fine because everyone. He's fine in a book. He'd be exhausting in a television show. Yes. So it's he. They give him just the right amount of bedazzle. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. And he even gets the cool scene where he's playing pool, and Alia comes in, and she's like, "So what? Oh, what are you?" There's something going on here, isn't it? And he gets like a bunch of really cool lines. He's like, I'm like the wind. Or I'm I'm words upon the wind. I am he goes yes, he goes, No, I am not like the wind. I am words upon the wind. And then he does this like cool walk around the pick around the pool table and hop down thing. And he tosses her a ball, which feels symbolic. I probably have to watch it again. Probably will watch it again, because again, there's a lot of shirtless James McAvoy. <laughs> and then he he's like, Yeah, we were grown in the same tank, him and I. Me first and then him. Because um, we still get the plot where they take the Gola to um, Paul. And that's where we actually get that scene you were mildly complaining about, which was the scene where they, we start on we start on the window and then we pan down and we have Paul in his throne. We have Irulan in her throne and Alia in her throne. And... Julie, motherfucking Cox, and those dresses. Right? They are beautiful. And I don't even care that she has breakup bangs. I don't. It's fine. <laughs> I, I also noticed the bangs. <laughs> I was like, ah, bangs. Mm, uh, uh, you know what? It's okay. She makes it work. It's fine. It's water conservation. That's all I can imagine. So it's perfectly fine. But the way she sits is so... I am a yeah, fucking So this is what princess. I meant when I said everybody's posture is what catches your yes, eye. Because she is sitting up like, I am a motherfucking princess, and you better- I, And Muad'Dib is just like- He sits fucking like- Fucking slouching, He's almost. slouching off to the side. He's got but one he's, leg- he's like power slouching. Yeah, he, he's man-spreading. He's got yeah. like one <laughs> leg cocked up over the armrest. He's like leaning back on the other, and it's just like, here I am, y'all. Ali is sitting up really nicely too, but he's literally lounging in his throne. And this is significant because this is the moment when the Spacing Guild representative rolls in. And it's Elric and he's CG and he's not It's not bad. Not bad. He's Honestly. not you know, you know what? This could have been way worse. Yeah. He could have looked like he did in Dune. The, <laughs> the 1984 Dune? Well, no, not the ball, not the floating ball sack. But no, Frank Herbert's Dune where he's like a bat. Remember the bat guy? Yes. The like, yeah. like the shaky jello bat guy? Yeah. Um, that would, like, suspended in a tank? Way worse. I'm glad they tried CG and that he's sparingly in it. Yeah. And so this is him rolling in and being like, what's up? And- uh, hello, Emperor of the Known Universe. And Paul's like, cool, hey, glad glad you could come. He's like, yeah, so you kidnapped um, Gaius Helen Mohiam out of my spaceship. Can you give her back? And he's like, yeah, no. I told her never to come back to Dune. Actually, they show her getting caught. They don't show her getting caught in the book. Um, they just say she got caught. Mm. But 
No, they escort her. They escort her out of the Heinleiner, and then we get this long <clears throat> passage of her walking through the largest structure, this largest man-made structure in the known universe. Yeah, which I like the and big she has statues. to watch. She has to walk through yeah. all of these giant rooms full of art. Yeah. Like supporting the the mythology of Muad'Dib as emperor. Yeah. And then going through door after door after door after door. <laughs> and then her being like, I'm an old woman and you made me fucking walk here. What the hell do you want? Just if you're going to execute me, kill me now. Yeah. I can't walk any farther. And we skip we skip all that. I like how they design that because it's kind of described in the book, but it's not super described. But I like how they put the like, it looks like a temple. Mm-hmm. It looks really cool. So Elric is like, well, okay, fine. Like she knew the risk, whatever. Um, we got you a present though. And so this is when Duncan walks up and this is not the same actor. We didn't get the same actor back. And it's fine. It's fine. Um, and Duncan Idaho no longer has a Scottish accent because I think we made a crack in the first one about how he froze from Planet Glasgow because yeah. he has a Scottish accent. <laughs> he sounds like he's from London. I like this guy. I think he does a really good job. He gets a line when he's talking to Alia where she says, what do you see with those eyes? Which doesn't make as much sense when he doesn't have the Tylax suit eyes. Right. But it's fine. It's cool. You, you get it. And he goes, the same thing as everybody else. And it's delivered like, perfect. It's exactly how I want it. Mm-hmm. And... He does a really good job being, I, I'm not so sure. I, I wish there was a way we could have illustrated that moment when he remembers who he is instead of just being like, oh, do you remember now? Yep. I remember my childhood and shit. Cause basically. What right. Cause did. we could have had a montage. We could have had like a, like a, you know, a quick flash of yeah. like him remembering other things. Yeah. Like happened. a quick, just. Yeah, life flashes before your eyes kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, we could have had, instead it's like, am I going to stab Paul? Nope, I'm going to kill Bajaz because now I know who I am. And they're like, shit, he knows who he is. And I'm like, eh, I mean, well, fine. In the in the book, when that happens, they're like, fucking yes. Well, I mean, they do that. They yeah. do that. But I just wish there was a way they could have been more. Oh, conveyed it better. You conveyed it visually. Yeah. Um, It's fine. It's like my complaints are minor and petty. <laughs> uh, it's literally just, well, I didn't feel that. Right. If you want the depth, read the book. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it's fine. You get it. He expresses, yeah, I'm I'm actually Duncan now. And Sightail, who is standing there with a knife over some babies, is like, fucking yes! I knew we could bring you all the way back. And Paul's like, was this your whole thing all along? He's like, why can't I have more than one motive? Two things can be true. I could be here to kill your children. And bring Duncan back. Oh, that scene at the end. The whole birth scene at the end. Because he knows he's saying goodbye to Chani. And she's like, why do I feel like we're running out of time? And he says, we have eternity. And she says, no, you have eternity. I only have now. And we go from there to them. He's like, let's go to the desert. Let's Let's have our children out in the desert. And so they go out into the desert and she gets this really melancholy moment where she's like poking a scorpion. <laughs> and she's like, I used to hunt these for fun when I was a child. And it's amazing what simple pleasures you have as a child. But now the desert is going and the simple pleasures are going with it. Which sums up a whole lot of the yeah. whole message of the book. I love how too. 
empathic Johnny is portrayed in this because Duncan comes out and she's like, are you afraid to be Duncan? Are you afraid of his memories? And he's like, well, I'm afraid that the memories aren't real, that they've given them to me, that these are implants. And she's like, there will come a time where you will know. And it's true. That's exactly what happens. Because, of course, she's supposed to be slightly psychic, too. So she is aware, sort of tangentially, that time is running out. But not in the same way that Paul is. Because Paul knows this this is it. These are his last moments with Chani. And their love story is absolutely my favorite thing about the first two books. Um, I think maybe that's why Children of Dune didn't hit as well. It was good, and I enjoyed it. But it wasn't like, oh didn't have my heart and I think it's because there's no love in those books as soon as Leto finds the lady that he's like oh she's supposed to be my Chani he's like oh gross never mind and he just takes another path because it's not worth it and I I like Dune Messiah but I do not like that Paul does not go to Chani at any point when she's this is the best like change in this, the adaptation. This is a change and it is a necessary change. I think for the like man of the 1970s when Dune Messiah came out, the like, I can't be with my woman because I can't see her in pain. And I also can't see her vagina when it's not for sex. So I can't go into the birthing chamber. The and place then, is not for me. And then I then I can't be with her because she's going to die in childbirth. But this is a risk I'm willing to take. It's like, well, what about Chani? Chani had to go through all of that pain and all of that without Paul. And then she had to die never seeing him ever again. I apparently had strong feelings about that. They all came out at once. And I'm really sorry. Um, I mean, I've had a child. I've had multiple children. And I had one of them accidentally, naturally. <laughs> like, no intention <laughs> of my own. And, I mean, Matt was with me the whole time. And that was a key part of getting through the accidental natural birth was, like, Matt was right there with me. And I can't imagine being, like, is Matt out in the other room reading a book? Are you fucking serious right now? A bowling ball is ripping its way out of my vagina. I need someone in here to hold my hand. And so poor Chani literally had to go through that alone. But we change it. He's not in there with her when she's giving birth, which I think works because I don't know what place he would have had in that moment, except maybe to just like hold her hand. But I don't think he could stand to see her in that amount of pain. Right. And I get that. I get it. And so he's like meditating while this cool ass music is playing over everything. And before he leaves, he tells Alia, time to settle our debts. And so while Chani is giving birth, all this shit happens. And I like the Korba death scene way better because in the book, he just... It's a whole like machination where they have to get the knife right, like to a, realize that Corba's a bad guy. There's like and, a jury or there's like a courtroom scene. Yeah. And then he's like, I demand to be f- judged by Fremen law. And they're like, okay. And so he goes off to be like detained for a little while. Yeah. Until he can be judged by Fremen law. And then we, I don't think we see him again. I mean, not really. We just hear that he was killed. Yeah. Executed. Meh. Whatever better this is better because we get him like caught and then we get him like yeah you're gonna face fremen law and he sees the death still and he like freaks out it's a really well done scene and then we get 
Alia mourning, and then we are interposing all of this with Chani giving birth, and Paul is like gripping. Right, his he's hands. like flick, flexing his hands at yeah. the same time that Chani is like gripping the sheets. Yeah, and then he has like a single tear falls down his cheek. Yeah, like he cries. And then he goes to her and he actually gets to talk to her and say goodbye. And she's like, literally nothing in the universe is bigger than my love for you. Because he actually gets to explain, like, I could not avoid this outcome. There are outcomes that are unavoidable. There was no future that we got to spend together. So we got to spend literally as much time as I could possibly manage. And then that was it. I couldn't push it any farther. And he even tells Irulan, we get this cool scene with Irulan. God, I love how I just love what they did with this. Because we get that scene with Irulan where he's like, I've been really cruel to you. And she's like, I don't need your pity. And he's like, I'm just stating facts. I'm not pitying you. I don't care that I was cruel to you. <laughs> just like telling you. Um, and I'm sorry that you had to go through this and that you don't get to have the child that you wanted but yeah, I'm going to make it you up were, to you. You were as used as I was. Yeah, you were destined. And I get it. Like, it fucking sucks. Neither one of us had any choices. And, like, it fucking sucks. And I get it. And he actually kisses her. And she gets this, like. Like a real uh, full kiss. And yeah. then she's like, ugh. Like, that was the cruelest thing you ever could have done was give me a taste of what could have been. Right. Yeah. And then we find out they were dating in real life. Ah, yeah. Julie Cox and Alec Newman were dating. But you believe Irulan loved him. Yeah. But could never have him. Especially when we get that interaction with Chani and Irulan, where Irulan's like, because Chani realizes that Irulan's been giving her contraceptives. And so Chani shows up and she's like, About to cut her. You son of a bitch. And Irulan's like, Well, I mean, it should be my right to bear the royal heir. And she's, she's like, he's never going to do that. We give it up, girl. And Irulan says, you are not the only one who loves him. And Chani's like, oh, I know. But I'm the only one he loves. I love how Chani could have been. She could have been a petty character because she's in a position where she has to share her husband with everybody, including a wife. Even though he never does his husbandly duties for Irulan, um, there's still the public perception that Chani is like, she's the side piece. She's the main piece, but so sociologically speaking, she's the right. side piece. And right. yet, legally speaking. And Chani could not give a shit. She's like, I have what I want, and it's Paul. And everything else is immaterial. The lady who does Chani does a great job in this. Even mm -hmm. though she has to wear like a weird fur leather <laughs> thing. <laughs> it reminded me of um what was it? Uh, Holga from the Dungeons and Dragons movie. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I don't know. Julie Cox gets these just oh my fucking god. These beautiful satin dresses that she's wearing mm -hmm. are just like out of the, that, those costumes are out of this world. And then poor Barbora is in what looks like somebody bought a leather like brassiere thing. 
And then they were like, what What did we find? They were like, I found some faux fur. It looks like it kind of matches. What fur would that be from? What animal on Dune has fur? And they're like, fuck it. Just glue it on there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> including the like head wrap she wears. She wears like a uh, headpiece. Yeah. Where they just took that, like they cut a piece off and they were like, what do we do with this? We can't just throw it away. They're like, stick a button on it, throw it on a headband, make it a fucking hat. And so they make it a fucking hat. And then she has to wear both of these because now it's an outfit because it has the same fabric on both of them. And I just feel for her because she has to wear it in like three scenes. They clearly blew their money somewhere else. And it wasn't on James McAvoy's wardrobe because he's only wearing pants. <laughs> <laughs> It must have been on that shoulder thing that the Gola wears, the like black mentat shoulder thing that he wears for oh, a while. Yeah. Oh, and we ditched the whole Sunsuni thing, which is fine with me. It doesn't ever really make all that much sense. The the thing that the that Duncan being trained as a mentat and Zensuni philosopher is to just have him give a whole bunch of confusing dialogue yeah which generates more dialogue right for the book yeah and it's fine that we take that out i do think it would have been so we really simplified duncan's character for the sake of condensing it yeah. all this into one episode because we dropped the whole zensuni thing yeah. because that only generates more dialogue but then we also dropped the name because Hate. when he first shows up, Muadib's like, yeah, they tell me you're Duncan Idaho. How do you like that name? Oh, and I hate it. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, okay, well, you get to choose your own name. What do you want to be called? Hate. Hate. H-A-Y-T. Right. Yeah. And so he like requests that everybody call him Hate through the whole story. Yeah. Until he like reawakens. Right. It and then he's yeah. like, hey, everybody, I'm Duncan Idaho. I think that's something we could have definitely kept in and it would have made that reveal at the end far more yes. impactful because he, along the way, we're like, they're like, oh, was that a Duncan memory? So that would have made more sense if we were calling him something else. If he was like, yes. actually, can you? They do call him the Gola. I think that's an attempt at keeping, keeping yeah. the hate thing instead of without adding the complexity of hate. It's like, um, he, let's just call him the Gola. So they call him the Gola through most of it. Um, it works. It's fine. I, you can't include everything and the things that they, I mean, we are hunting for things to complain about. Right. Like digging really deep. I feel like I can tell that the person who wrote the teleplay, like the person who made these, these adaptations loved the books. Yes. And that absolutely comes through. That absolutely comes through and read them in the way that we read them, which was like, okay, this is great. But like, I can love a thing and I can be aware of the thing's flaws all at the same time. I don't have a problem with that. The knowledge of something's flaws to me is part of loving it. And I feel like when you are a fan of something like Dune, and you are aware of the flaws that it has, look at what you can do. He took Dune, and he was well aware that, like, Irulan gets short shrift, and she ends up being a far less impactful character throughout 
the three books that she's going to be in simply because she's not well-developed enough in Dune. Okay, great. Let's develop her. Perfect. Makes her into a fabulous character. Gives us the same feeling of depth that we get from the book with all those little snippets at the top Mm -hmm. without actually having to read the snippets. And then in Dune Messiah, it's like Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. It's like, okay, what if these two books were one book? How can we, what can we do to use one to cover up the flaws of the other? So I feel like in Dune Messiah, we don't have a good, in Dune, we know it's Frank, or Frank Herbert. Well, we knew he wrote it, but I'm talking about the Baron Harkonnen. The Baron Harkonnen, the bad guy. Dune Messiah, the bad guy is the weight of responsibility that Paul (laughs) cannot shrug off. Like, I mean, there's so many people plotting against him after a while. You're like, I don't know. Is it Elric? Is it Sightail? Is it Gaius Helen Mohiam? Is it Irulan? Is it whoever? Okay, well, we got a pretty clear bad guy in Children of Dune. Let's just make her the bad guy in all of it. And then let's hire Susan fucking Sarandon to play Wincentia. Apparently, Susan Sarandon is like a huge Dune fan. Oh, really? And she was like, oh, yeah, I'll be in it. Because Irulan's supposed to be the older sister. But Susan Sarandon's a full, like, 30 years older than Julie Cox. She does fabulous. I have no complaints. And so they put her in it, which is just funny to see a big name in this. It's like all these people. And I'm like, oh, I wish you'd gone on to do other things. And then you're like. Oh, and hello, Susan Sarandon. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the show. And so she does a great job. They use her to cover a lot of the flaws from Dune Messiah, and I think it's great because they it gives us that tiny touch of simplicity that we enjoyed in Dune, and gives it back to us without actually compromising yeah, the spirit. We're of able the to skip a huge amount of politics and dialogue yeah and we move jessica back too because jessica's not in dune messiah at all she dipped she gone and then in children of dune she just shows up like hello i have returned from caladan i think frank kind of forgot about me for a couple of <laughs> chapters there but i'm back uh, so when we move her back and it's literally like the stone burner scene happens which is a really fucking cool scene and we will talk about that one next but the whole stone burner scene happens and then we get gurney halleck reporting to jessica yeah they tried to kill him and they took his eyes like the stone burner burned his eyes but they can they there's t- saying he can still see and jessica's like great let's go to caladan and he's like no, no. You mean Arrakis. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Let's go to Arrakis. And Gurney is like, no, no. Uh, shit's stirred. The pot is stirred right now. We don't need to add any more seasoning to an already spicy soup. Okay? You got to stay here. And she's like, God damn it. I love it when you're right. And we actually get a new lady playing Lady Jessica. And it's the Borg Queen. I don't think we put her name on the board so i just every time i see her i'm like oh it's the board queen from yes. first contact yeah. like oh, okay there she is like she's not the only one who's been paul alec newman actually plays in uh star trek enterprise he's in a, like a long story arc oh he's not a main character but he's in okay. one of the longer arcs Interesting. so there's actually quite a few star trek actors who come and play in this but she plays the board queen in first contact and i remember it every single time because she's like the sensual one she gives data the piece of skin and she like blows on it and makes his hair stand up and he's like oh 
I don't know why, but that scene haunts me. So it's just <laughs> stuck in my head. <laughs> Actually, they wanted her to be Lady Jessica in the first miniseries. Oh, really? But she couldn't do it. Okay. And then they tried to get um, the other lady to come back, and she was pregnant. She couldn't do it. Okay. And so they got her. They were like, well, let's get the lady we wanted the first time around. So they hired her to be in this. It's fine. Um, cast changes happen. I don't really have a problem with it. It's fine. Yeah, I think they, it still they, works great. They, they make it clear who the character is. This was three years later. Yeah. 2000 to 2003 was not a world where you waited three years for a new series of a television show. Right now, we'll be like, oh, my God. Foundation just wrapped up. It was so fucking great. They've just started filming for the next one. It'll be out in 2027. We're like, I can't fucking wait. That that ain't the world we lived in in 2000 and 2003. Right. You watched 22 to 28 episodes of a television show. It took the summer months off. And then in the fall, you had the premiere season where all of your television shows were all coming back. And you watched your 22 to 28 episodes in your season, and then bang, you were off again in the summer. And in the summer, now... Reruns. Wait, wait, sit down. If you're not sitting down, there was no new content all summer long. None. Because everybody was traveling. Unless... You caught a rerun, you missed the first time around. Yep. Yeah. Literally nothing new came out in the summer. And like every month we'd get the TV guide and you'd look through the TV guide and see, oh, there's a marathon for this show. I missed some episodes. So now I have to sit down and <laughs> watch the marathon to get everything. Yeah, because you didn't. They didn't tell you what episodes. They were just like, Forever Night will be on for the next six hours. Well, fucking great. I'm going to sit here for six hours or at least for the first five minutes of every hour to see if <laughs> I've seen this episode. And that was life. So this has, this was three years later. It was fine. No, it, Maybe it was out on DVD. It's impressive that they got as many people back as they did. Yeah, it is. Oh, I'm so glad they got. The only one I think would have ruined it if they hadn't gotten him back was... Alec, Paul, yeah, and Chani, because their chemistry is so great. And then he does the stone burner scene. So the stone burner scene in the book is like, this is my favorite fucking scene because he knows this is coming. He is going out there because he is like, this is it. He is stuck in this path now. Or as um, James McAvoy keeps repeating, to know the future is to be trapped by it. Right. But knowing of a trap is the first step in avoiding its, avoiding it? Avoiding it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I loved how they worked those lines in, in the show because he doesn't see his son. He doesn't even, he knows he's going to have a son. He doesn't know he's going to have a daughter, but he doesn't see his son like this in the book. But in the movie, in the show, we work it in as like dreams or like just at any moment he might be standing there and like look off and he's in the future. And the future is him seeing his son. Right. And talking about the golden path, which we didn't mention until children. Right. And I think planting the seed for the golden path here was also a genius move. Yeah. Because the whole idea of the golden path is so controversial, maybe. Yeah. That 
establishing from the very beginning, even from Muad'Dib's perspective, the golden path is the only way forward. Yeah. And the golden path is different than what you're doing now. And you know what it is. You just have to be brave enough to fully commit to doing it. Father, you can see it. It's right in front of you. Right? Mm-hmm. So then when we get to the future, or when we get to the next episodes, and Leto's like, even my father knew what had to be done, yeah. but he wasn't brave enough to do it. We've already, like, we don't have to sell it at the time yeah. where it becomes relevant. We're establishing how important it is. Not what it is. We don't talk about what no, it no, is. No. It just, yeah. just that Paul should know what it is. He knew what it was. He knows, but, but. it's an, it wasn't like an option that yeah. he was willing to participate in. Yeah. So he goes to meet Othium. Lichna shows up. Lichna slash Zytel shows up. He goes to meet Othium. Othium has the spitting disease, which I love how they portray this. He's like in bed and it's like this phenomenal warrior. And now he's just dying in a bed hacking up yeah red, and he's like, like i didn't know liquid. i didn't know if you'd come and he's like well fucking yeah you're my friend you're my fedaiken. i have your water debt you're my command me fedaiken. he's like you you have my water debt like com- command me like tell me what to do and i'll do it for you like i'll get doctors what do you want and he's like i just wanted you to know that like the fremen are plotting against you and like it, i feel really embarrassed about it because you're you're fucking Muad'Dib. And he's like, man, it's cool. Like, I, I still love you. And they embrace. Mm-hmm. And then we get Bajaz. Bajaz <laughs> is like the line between enemy and... F- there's a fine line between enemy and friend. And where that line ends, there's no beginning and no end. Yep. And you're like, oh, God. Jeez, Bajaz. And this is when Bajaz is like, show. We should... We should probably buy- go. Be gone. Yeah. He's like, let's let bygones buy bygones, and we should say bye and be gone. (laughs) Like, let's just go. (laughs) And so he gets his little hat, and they leave. And there's like a – like, it's eerie because it's dark, and there's nobody out there. Right, it's abandoned. Yeah, everyone's gone. And there's a wind, and Bajaz is like – there's a rumble. What's that breeze? And he's like, eh, you know. Oh, and we get more puddles. Yeah, puddles vibrating, and uh, the stone burner looks really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, for some reason in my mind, this was, he had, like, CG empty eye sockets. I think he does in the next ones. I don't think he does. I think it's still black sclera contacts. You think? I, Cause maybe, my, maybe this is a Mandela effect thing. Maybe. Because I have a memory of Muad, like, Muad'Dib as the preacher with hollow eye sockets. Yeah. Nope. I don't think he does. I think he's still because he quote loses his eyes, but probably for budget constraints, like tracking his eye. And oh doing yeah, that. that would have been so expensive. Yeah, he just yeah. wears full black, like it's full sclera, all it's black. A good enough. It's fine. Effect. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's like it burned my eyes, not it liquefied my eye tissue. So yeah. like. I'm okay with this change because <laughs> I don't have to see his empty eye sockets and I don't have to see this poor actor try to act with like a band around his eye the entire time. I watched this, <laughs> I watched a lot of K-dramas, but I watched this K-drama that I really fucking love and it's called Bulgasal. 
And there's a part where he gets slashed across the eye with a knife. And they're going to get better because he's a supernatural creature. But he has to wear like this band around his eyes. And it's not, I mean, it's not the best choice. Like he wears it for way too long. But he doesn't have to. He just gets the full scleric contacts, which is nice. So um, Chani comes back and he's in bed. And, you know, everyone's like checking in on him, making sure he's okay. She sends everybody off. And then we get this really sweet scene where he's like, I couldn't avoid this. Like it had to happen. And she's like, I'm just glad you're okay. And he's like, God fucking damn it. Because this is the beginning of the end. This right now is the beginning of the end. Yes, he can see what's going to happen. But it's because the future is so set in stone. He is literally just looking like a millisecond into the future. He has been cherishing every moment that he can get with Chaney before this sequence of events starts. Yeah. And he's been doing things. He's been spinning his wheels. Uh, yeah. Trying to delay when this happens. Yeah. And, and the, he mentions that with Irulan, he's like, your, your amateurish, like fumbling attempts to stop Cheney from having more babies actually prolonged her life. And that's why I'm, I'm thankful. Yeah. And I'm going to keep you safe. Like I gave yeah. orders. No one is to harm you. And you're going to raise my kids. He doesn't say that, but he's like, don't worry. Compensation is in the mail. The check's in the mail. Like, <laughs> <laughs> checks in the mail. Checks in the fucking mail. Um, see you never. And so he goes off to the siege and then we get the birth scene and then Chani dies. They get this beautiful moment together and then she dies and he he's blind. He cannot see because what's the fucking point? As we discussed in the book review episode. Yeah. Um, he's. He's now living in a universe where he doesn't want to see. Yeah. He's in a universe he doesn't like with flesh that doesn't fit. Yeah. Which is the best description of grief I have ever heard. And so he like subconsciously turns off his prescience. Yeah. So he can't see anymore. I don't fucking care. Because it's not worth seeing without Chaney. And he actually interacts with the babies. He doesn't interact with the babies in Dune Messiah. He does in this one. He like walks over and we get... Alec Newman looks like he fucking loves these babies. I believe he loves these babies. He walks over and he's like, (laughs) he's like twins. I never saw twins. And he like sticks his hand in there and holds one of their little hands. It's really, really cute. And then of course, Sightail shows up and... Oh, this is when he's like, she's gone, Duncan, which is the trigger word for Duncan. And so Duncan's like, oh, I don't want to stab him. Oh, so instead of like the power of Paul's love, Duncan's love for Paul keeps him from killing Paul and actually brings Duncan all the way back. So we should have we should have had this like life flashing before his eyes. Ending with like a scene, like a memory of Duncan and Paul, like palling up palling it up and duncan saying something like like i'm yours forever i'd never stab you in the back (laughs) i promise even if someone neurolinguistically programmed me to stab you in the back i wouldn't do it i'd never do it (laughs) and then i remember the oath (laughs) god damn i made a promise (laughs) why did paul make me swear that oath (laughs) so many years ago it's like he knew (laughs) but he 
kills the jazz and then he actually interacts with the babies again. Oh, and we see James McAvoy because we know he can kill Sightail in the book because he sees through his son's eyes. But we actually get like his son shows up and he's like, use my eyes. They're right there. He's like, we're both preborn because mom ate so much fucking spice. So I'm already here. I already know who you are. I'm willing to help you use my eyes. And so he uses his son's eyes to kill Sightail. And then he's like, where are the babies? I got to check on him. And so he's like, he sticks his hand in and he like holds their little hands. And then he goes, I'm free. And that is the perfect delivery of that line of like, he's saying goodbye because he can't stand by these children. They will mm-hmm. never be safe. Right. And the best thing that he can do for them is start the downfall of his own empire. Because he was, as the tagline says, born to create an empire, destined to bring it down. So Is that the tagline for this for this, series? Yeah. Nice. So he's like, I've already arranged for your care, basically, and I am free. And so he just walks off into the desert. And then we get the wrap up, oh, like voiceover, Irulan voiceover, where she's like, like a good Fremen, he wandered off into the sands, like never to be seen again. And then we get Alia is, I think Duncan comes to talk to Alia and he's trying to comfort her. And he says, they say he has gone on a journey to a place where you leave no footprints in the sand. And that no man may find him on Dune, but now everyone will find him. Because, like, he he has transcended a single location. He is no longer Paul. He is the, he is the, the Paul one that John Ross... The one who can be in many places at one, yes. the same time. Yeah. Well, the he's, Kwisatz Haderach. He's the Paul that Jodorowsky envisioned at the end. <laughs> we are all Paul. And she gets this really poignant line where she goes, I wonder if that's what he wanted. And we find out no later. He didn't fucking want that. He he intended this to completely humanize his like godhead. Yeah. But it ends up mysticizing him even yeah, more. Which is why he has to fucking come back. Which that's not a spoiler. You listened to our other episodes, didn't you? Oh, this is so brilliant and beautiful and lovely and I love it. And I actually found the soundtrack on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> because of course you did i had forgotten you know you ever listener matt whoever do you ever rediscover a thing that you loved and like you loved it and you loved it so much that at a certain point you were like i gotta take a break and it's like when you told me you <laughs> God. i was gonna make a real poignant statement and then you were like <laughs> that in there <laughs> one of our patreons uh said that they really appreciate matt's ability to mix both dad jokes and double entendres You're and welcome. uh she was like i hope that doesn't stir anything up and i'm like no he will appreciate this praise <laughs> pretty sure you were like hell yeah I can. i'm trying <laughs> i'm trying people are noticing your effort honey okay <laughs> <laughs> but there was a time when I was complaining about picking up the kids and you were like, you know, someday you will put them down for the last time. And I was like, wow, <laughs> really took the wind out of my like bitching sails for that, like with this one line. And so that's kind of how it feels. It's like, 
I don't know. Every once in a while, you love a thing and you love it so deeply. You just immerse yourself in it. And then you're like, wow, I just got to, I got to come out. I got to surface for a little while. I got some fresh air. I got to do some other stuff. And then you just don't go back. Right. You forget about it. You forget about it. And then you're like, what was that thing? Oh, I wonder if it's still good. And you watch it and you're just like, why did I leave? This was so fucking good. That happened to me once when I had an old like desktop computer yeah. that I I used for a long time, like right after high school. And then I put it away and then it just like sat in boxes and as we moved around. And then I got it out and I was, does this thing even still turn on? And it turned on and um, Winamp automatically opened and it had like my whole playlist in there. <gasps> and I was like, oh. <gasps> <laughs> fucking win app with the like visualizer the equalizer thing that yep. you, mm, mm, when you could move the little pieces what was all it? around something like it whoops the llama's ass <laughs> <laughs> i think was the tagline <laughs> <laughs> but there's no substitution for that right there's no yeah. substitution for that like you pick up the book you used to love and you read the first line and it's like Oh my fucking God, I'm home. I am home. This is brilliant. This I love it. Thank you so much. I feel that way every once in a while. Like, I don't know if anybody knows this or not, but we're doing a Forever Night podcast. <laughs> like almost <laughs> done with it. But um, it was a show that meant a lot to me when I was in high school for various reasons. Because when you're nerdy and lonely and um, your parents don't understand you, literally don't actually understand you, and you don't really feel like you have a place, then vampires are kind of where you end up, because <laughs> it's like, who else is lonely and doesn't have a place? Oh, monsters. Right. Okay. So um, it had a big, like, it meant a lot to me. And then as you get older, you're like, well, this is kind of corny. I don't know. I can't, like, I'm not here for this right now. I have to put away childish things. Well, you you move away from it. You're like, mm, mm -hmm. you know, that had its place and I've immersed myself in it and I have all of these on tape and I've labeled them all and I've watched them to death. And like, I just, you know, I, I'm not going to watch it again for a little bit. I'm going to let it rest. And then you don't go back. And then you go back and you're like, mm, it's not the right time, maybe. And then you come back again, like in the right moment, everything has aligned. You put that on, like the credits open up and you're like, fucking yes. Like, I am so happy to be back. And I, there's just no substitution for that feeling. And I think that's why story is so important to me, because I you associate stories with certain things in your life, with certain ways you were feeling. And it's so nice to go back and revisit when you're in a different place. Right. It's the same story, but you're a different person. You're now. a different person and you find new meaning and the meaning is just as great or better. And I love that. And I feel like because of how complex Dune is and how well done both of these adaptations are, I will be able to come back to this every time I have no matter how much I have changed and I will find a new way to appreciate it every single time. And hands down, these are probably the best book adaptations I can think of like off the top of my head, maybe Stardust because Stardust, the movie is better than the book. Right. But other than that, I mean like the Lord of the Rings are great, 
they're 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 good. They're they're <laughs> trying to figure out how to put this. The Lord of the Rings is not as challenging to adapt. Right. It's sort of like, what do we cut? What do we not cut? It's not like, oh God, if I cut this, then this tiny because Lord fine of the line Rings thread... is not trying to be challenging to the reader. Like, right? The purpose of Dune Messiah is to challenge the reader. Yes, that was a fan of Dune. Right. But Lord of the Rings is not trying to be challenging to the reader. It's just an enjoy. It's an adventure story. It's telling a mythological story. Yeah. So. Maybe it's complexity to adaptation ratio. This has the mm-hmm. best com- complexity to successful adaptation ratio of anything that I think. I, I just, I-, I can't think of anything else that compares. Maybe if we made it now and it got like a, like The Expanse got its long television show or Foundation is getting like six plus episodes. They had three episodes. They had six total episodes to do three books. Yeah. Denny Villeneuve is doing two full-length movies that will together be longer than this entire, like, miniseries. And he's doing the first book. Yeah. And he's planning to do Dune Messiah. And I just... I'm not... Okay. I hate the, oh, it's going to be terrible culture. It drives me absolutely bananas. Every time... I see something announced and I'm like, I'm so fucking excited. And then all the comments are like, ew, they're not going to do a good job. Ugh, it's going to be terrible. There's no way they can do it justice. Like, calm down. You have no idea until you watch it whether or not it's going to be good. I've been burned so many times in my life, but there is never going to come a moment where I am not optimistic about the adaptation of a property that I love. Because what do I gain by disparaging it before it ever comes out? You are setting yourself up to hate it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Maintain your optimism about it. I guarantee you, even if it's shitty, you'll love it better because you were looking forward to it. And you're like, you know, it's cool. They tried so hard and I'm just so glad they tried. Okay, sorry. I was about to go off about Murderbot. I'm not going to go off about Murderbot. Murderbot's getting adapted. I'm so excited. Which means we're going to be redoing all the Murderbot books. We did them for Fish, Sheath, and Shatter, but Matt and I didn't do Murderbot, and I want to do Murderbot with you. Since I introduced you to Murderbot. I know, and you were like, you're going to like this, and I was like, ugh. I don't know if anybody else has a uh, neurospicy wife or a neurospicy <laughs> partner, but um, I don't have any control over when I can interact with new media. I can put it in the queue, and it has to be approved by the you have to become ready for it uh it has to be approved by the neurodivergent department and then i'm (laughs) then i'm able to um read it so it was in the queue for a while and then i read it i don't remember where i was going with the adaptation thing but i just oh um what would oh what would it be like to have this team now with foundation level budget with the and and effects and effects to make like a six hour long television show of dune a six episode television show of dune Mm -hmm. and then like a six episode series with dune messiah and children of dune i don't think they should separate the two the way that they merge those two books makes those books better they need to keep them together yeah it makes it much better for a miniseries yeah yeah it makes them better i like the story better in the miniseries i like the story just fine in the books i like the story better in the miniseries because of the way we take the f- there 
he treats some characters as like a means to an end. This is just mm-hmm. furthering the plot. And sometimes it's not obvious and sometimes it is. And I'm really, really glad they sort of spackled that over and used that as like glitter to cover up some of the flaws. So anyway, we've already talked about that. I don't want to talk about it again, but I just, I think in summary, this series is the shit and I'm so excited to be watching it again. And guess who actually gets to have a shirt on in the next episode? (laughs) Jimmy. James McAvoy. Baby, baby James McAvoy. I don't know how old he is when this came out. Let me look. Because I'm going to feel like a real big creeper. 2003. (laughs) But just made a bunch of cracks about him being shirtless. Let's see. Okay, he was born in 1979, which makes him... 40-something now? Well, now. But what would he have been in 2003? In 2003, he would have been 23. 24? 24. 24. Okay. He's 24. That's fine. It's good. It's fine. I went to the dentist today and I had to give your birthday and she thought I said 1994. And then she gave me, I got a look. She goes, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) I said, no, no, 84. She goes, oh, girl, I was about to say, I mean, good on you, but (laughs) that would make me quite the cougar. No, I am not married to a man 10 years younger than me. Thanks for asking. I just thought that was really funny. She was, I was immediately judged. Let's put it that way. So I'll just leave it there. I'm so excited to watch the rest of the series. I kind of want to go up and watch it right now. Maybe I will. So remember, sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful too. So be who you are and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.